0: If two years ago people had asked you, you know, do you think Australia will um, create a commission that you have to apply to in order to exit the country? You would have said, don't be stupid, man. That's not how it works. You know, this is this is liberal democracy. Come on. You know, we have a consensus here. You know, if somebody said, uh, will people be forced to take a particular medicine? Mm -hmm. (laughs) I don't want to attract trouble for you here.
1: You're listening to The Wake Up Podcast with Alex vetsky the place where the most dynamic thinkers and practitioners in the world drop truth bombs and contrarian viewpoints to help you become the best version of yourself. Find us on the Fountain app and send us a boost with a comment. Peter St. joins me for part one of the Bitcoin as a Peaceful Revolution series. Peter is a research fellow at the Heritage Foundation and the Mises Institute, as well as a contributor to Zero Hedge. He wrote this piece for the Bitcoin Times Edition 4, which you can find a link to in the show notes. In this episode, we explore cults, religion, socialism, Christianity, common law, and the origins of the West. I want to thank Unchained Capital and BlockWare Solutions for helping support the Bitcoin Times And ensuring that it stays free for everyone online. If you're interested in proper self-custody or stacking some KYC free sats via mining, you can learn more about each of them via the links in the show notes. Finally, remember to follow Peter on Twitter at profstonji and subscribe to the Wake Up Podcast. Enjoy the show. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to episode, I think it's gonna be 75 of the Wake Up Podcast. And I've got Peter Saint-Ange with me. Um he's a research fellow at the Heritage Foundation, he's a fellow at the Mises Institute and a contributor at Zero Hedge. And I mean he's got PhD at the end of his name. So like let's let's tread lightly here, but <laughs> <laughs> he's a, he's a else has, like Alex, solid, I don't know why you right? would. <laughs> <laughs> Pete, thanks for joining, man. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Absolutely. So look, we were we were kind of Having a quick discussion beforehand about some of the stuff you're doing at the Heritage Institute, maybe before we get stuck into the piece, you can give kind of an overview of some of the stuff you're working on there um, and and what that's kind of doing for Bitcoin and the Bitcoin industry broadly behind the scenes.
0: For sure. So Heritage Foundation, uh, it's my day job and we are the largest conservative think tank in the world. Uh, And we have been making a big push into Bitcoin uh, for a lot of the reasons why traditionally we've been supportive of gold, right? Mm -hmm. As you know, Mm -hmm. a lot of the sort of sociological effects of Bitcoin are very, very similar to what they are for gold. Uh, I happen to think Bitcoin is a superior version of gold for a number of reasons that I'm sure we'll get into.
1: Um,
0: But at any rate, you know, ideologically, it really aligns with uh, American conservatism, right, which uh, has deep respect for individualism, for decentralization, mm-hmm. for people versus the powerful, uh, for innovation, for that matter. Mm-hmm. There's, there's really a lot of elements of Bitcoin that, I mean, really, they align with America's traditional culture in general, mm-hmm. no matter mm-hmm. what side of the aisle you're on. Uh, so we've been really active um, in the space and, you know, we want to get more involved. It's on the menu increasingly. Um, You know, one of the things I do is uh, brief Senate candidates on, you know, messaging and understanding how the economy works. Uh, And in that they come to us wanting to understand Bitcoin. Okay, this is not Mm -hmm. even us evangelizing. This is regular people who go to campaign events or who donate or reach out to their campaigns. Small donors guarantee you it's not large donors who are asking about Bitcoin. It's not Wall Street. (laughs) <laughs> Who yeah, yeah. wants to promote this, right? They might want shit coins, but, uh, you know, they're not, they're not trying to get favors in Bitcoin. Um, and then those people, you know, they, they start asking themselves the questions. That takes them down the rabbit hole. It takes them to central banking. They're asking mm-hmm. us, you know, why is the Fed screwing things up? Uh, so, I mean, Bitcoin has really opened a lot of doors into people questioning a lot of the foundations of the economic institutions that have been victimizing us really for at least 100 years.
1: Have you, have you seen an increase in interest in what you guys are doing at Heritage since Bitcoin's inception or perhaps in the last couple of years with like this sort of recent, uh, I guess, reinvigoration of Bitcoin in the mainstream?
0: Like, have you, have you seen that or? For sure. And, you know, part of that is uh, Bitcoin is just spreading to more people. Um, mm-hmm. You can learn about Bitcoin, but you don't unlearn about Bitcoin. Yeah. Right. So, you know, there's it's like a one way street, right? People sort of reach uh, enlightenment um, and they hang around. Uh, the other part of it is just that Bitcoiners themselves are getting older. Right. Mm. So in very, very early days, you know, your your typical Bitcoiner was like a, I don't know, a 24 year old engineer with no wife, no kids. Uh, he could put all his resources into Bitcoin because what else was he going to spend money on? You know, he made so much money, <laughs> you didn't know what to do with it. Uh, well, he had a, uh, you know, the classic TV and a uh milk crate was his only furniture. Yes. Uh, so, you know, those guys get older, right? They amass resources. They, they start to build their empire uh, and they start getting interested in different things. And one of the things that they get interested in as they get older uh, is organizing, right? So uh, they have kids, they, you know, give a crap about schools and about their communities. Uh, and so those people bring that same ethos in with them, right? So the sort of media, I think, is behind I mean, they're always behind, but they're still sort of working with this stereotype of the super shady. uh, Mm -hmm.
1: The shadow coder, right? Or whatever it
0: is. (laughs) Right. And, you know, increasingly Bitcoiners, they're in their 40s, they're in their 50s, they're dentists, they're doctors. Uh, These are people who give a crap and they organize. Uh, They tend to amplify their voices a lot more than a 22 year old might.
1: Mm -hmm. Interesting. Okay. Um, And just, I wanted to pull one thread. It was just kind of like uh, as I was listening to you, I think people confuse the the word conservative with, um, and, and this is tangential to what we're talking about, but related to the Heritage Foundation. But people confuse conservative with the right um, or Republican and all this sort of stuff. And and I remember I was reading Hopper recently. Or when I want to say recently. I think it was like six months ago or whatever. But he he made a really good distinction about like the conservative doesn't necessarily mean you know, the right, it's not, it's not right politics. It's just, uh, you know, classical values, I guess is a, is a good way to put it. So, so is that kind of, you know, could, could you maybe touch on that really briefly to kind of give a better definition of what conservative means that it's not fucking Trump it's like.
0: Right. Yeah. I mean, most of, you know, because the left owns all of the media outlets or the overwhelming Mm -hmm. majority (laughs) <laughs> conservatism uh, tends to get defined by its enemies in most people's minds, right? Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. Bitcoin, to be honest. Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. Um And, you know, there are, of course, a bunch of different flavors of conservative. And what the left will typically do is take the most unflattering beliefs of any one group and they'll sort of pull that off and paste it together until you have this hor- horrific monster. Uh, and, of course, you know, I mean, that, that bears... Um, very little relation to reality. All right. So at core, what conservatism is saying is that uh it's good to knock down walls, okay, but you want to be aware which walls are load-bearing. Mm-hmm. Right. So there are certain things that are very critical in a society, such as family. Okay. Families being stable, having, you know, a certain structure. It does not matter if it is between, you know, man and man, anything like this, irrelevant. Okay. this is this is the enemies defining it. All right. What Mm -hmm, we're mm -hmm. saying is that there are certain institutional structures, um, free speech, uh, property rights, right? There are certain elements that through very costly trial and error, humanity has discovered the recipe. And that's Mm -hmm. part of what we're going to get into today. But that recipe was largely enacted, at least in the West, in the Victorian age. And, you know, there's a reason why. You know, when people go and watch TV, they love anything set in the Victorian era. That'll always boost that. That'll that'll double your audience right there. Everybody loves the Victorian. Why? Because it was following those values. And so a lot Mm -hmm. of those things, we want to preserve those uh, as much as possible. And, you know, I mean, if you look at societies that are run according to conservative principles, they tend to be safe. People interact in a happy, friendly way. Um, you know, it's a respectful, a polite society, hard work. You know, if you work hard, you get the rewards. You have incentives to provide for your family, to provide for others, to the less fortunate. Uh, so, you know, I think the appeal is always going to be there because there are people who understand, they can sort of see through the propaganda that they're spoon fed, that there is a lot of wisdom that we've lost. And, you know, we want to try to figure out which elements of those past societies uh, we can recapture by maybe reversing some of these, you know, walls that were knocked down.
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It, it reminds me.
0: It reminds me of Mark
1: Moss and I just wrote a book called "The Uncommunist Manifesto," and and in there we kind of talk about how Marx, for example, his whole thing was to knock down all of these walls, to knock down family, to knock down uh, the relationship between you know man and woman, uh, to knock down uh, country. Which I mean you know, he, his version of knocking down country was more like moronic in nature. Like, you know, one one needs borders, right? Like, so I don't necessarily believe in arbitrary nation states, uh, you know, but I think that the notion of a border is extraordinarily important. Um, But, you know, not, notwithstanding, like there, there was a bunch of things that the Marxist wanted to ideologically, because they, they just don't have a depth of, you know, historical, psychological, philosophical understanding. They're just like, yep, let's just, Clean slate and we start again, which is a lack of appreciation for, as you said, all of the trial and error that humanity went through to figure the shit out. It's like, why go through all you know, centuries and millennia of like figuring it out when some idiot decides, well, how about we just like start again? It's like, no, it's not how it works. So I think that's um, yeah, it's important work that you guys are doing, man.
0: Huh? Yeah, it is. Yeah. And you know, increasingly important. I mean, I think all of us. You know, there are a lot of things where if two years ago people had asked you, you know, do you think Australia will um, create a commission that you have to apply to in order to exit the country? You would have said, don't be stupid, man. That's not how it works. You know, this is this is liberal democracy. Come on. You know, we have a consensus here. You know, if somebody said, uh, will people be forced to take a particular medicine? Mm (laughs) I don't want to attract trouble for you here. So, um, but anyway, uh, you would have said, no, you, you know, you're insane. That would never happen. That's not how our societies work. And holy cow, boy, what do you know? There's a lot of ugly stuff hiding under indeed. that veneer. Indeed. Indeed. It's funny. I've, I always called Australia
1: in particular uh, a um, a dictatorship behind a veil. And it's funny because I, I always had that sense. Um, I, I guess because I've always been a little bit more, you know, call it borderline, uh, non-compliant. Um, and you know, I have sort of experienced Australia on the, you know, on that end, I've, and, and people always used to say, it's like, what are you talking about, man? Australia is not a dictatorship. I was like, watch the, All that has to happen is something bad needs to happen. And Australia would t- like the, the veil will drop. I never knew what the hell it was going to be. Right. Um, but it just so happened that 2020 someone sneezed and it turned into a military dictatorship basically
0: this has been the, like the best two years. If you're like an insane prepper, you know, yeah. Birds aren't real. I mean, you are, yeah. th- this is your golden age, baby. I mean, all <laughs> of it came true, man. Nobody had toilet paper. You name it up and down all of it. Yeah. <laughs> this, is just, this is their victory lap. Forget Peter Schiff, man. They are having their moment in the sun.
1: do you know what i don't even know if they're having the moment in the sun yet because like i I did a tweet yesterday i said we're we're in the inflation stage of clown world i don't want to know what the hyperinflation stage looks (laughs) like it's
0: true it's true because yeah i i don't know man i feel like it's gonna get worse yeah and you know the hits just keep coming i mean you know you got babies going to the hospital because they don't have enough baby for i mean it if, if you were writing this as a fiction script, you'd be like, dude, this is way over the top. Come yeah, on. You got to yeah, yeah, keep yeah. it based in reality. He got Trudeau who, you know, what is he arresting people for accepting awards? Mm-hmm. Uh, you saw this with the trucker uh, uh, demonstrations and, you know, there's a woman associated with them and she was forbidden from yeah, 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 activities yeah. in the sphere and she accepted an award and they were like, so they, they grabbed her. Uh, I mean, it's just you in a dystopian novel you would not come up with this stuff because it's just it's just so unbelievable dragging the pastor out in calgary you know out of his church uh Was he, this you Polish know, guy, right? yeah uh uh yeah. up in calgary or in uh yeah. in canada i mean it's just we have seen some stuff uh that i think none of us expected you would not have written this stuff as fiction it would have been you know it would have been childish.
1: Yeah, well, that that's what happens when um you know you I, I guess the the whole cyclical nature of being coddled for a little while like w- one of the things one of the sections again to point to the uncommunist manifesto that me and Mark we kind of asked ourselves the question at the, when we finished writing the book we thought why has Marxism been so appealing and it hit me just like a like an epiphany I was like you know what it's it's an academic justification for entitlement basically and and that's you know what what's happened over the years is that you know we've our our forebears had it so good that you know it's just this 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 kind of it wasn't the age of enlightenment it was the age of entitlement <laughs> and yeah. they just kind of passed those values on and you know we 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 got a bunch of we got a bunch of monkeys at the end of it so you know now it's kind of us up to us to to try and reinstill some of those classical values.
0: Yeah. And it's like pulling people out of a cult. You know, you've, you've got this, um, I mean, it's really kind of the ideological instantiation of grooming where, you know, you, you isolate the victim. Okay. So you cut them off from their family. um, You cut them off from any kind of social support, right. You bring them into your sphere. uh, You just, you know, you, you brainwash them, you bring them over. A big part of it is telling them you're going to take care of everything. I mean, this is standard in every cult, right? Mm -hmm, bring them to the mm -hmm, house. mm -hmm, Everything, mm -hmm. right? You don't have to worry about anything anymore, okay? Any problems you have, you just come to me. I'll take care of it. And, I mean, this is, you know, it works. Uh, Cults, you know, they are a thriving business, uh, you know, multi-billion dollar industry. Uh, And, of course, the biggest cult of all is, you know, statism, is uh, Mm -hmm. the government reducing the people to children. You know, it starts young. Uh, makes them dependent, uh, makes them mm-hmm. powerless, makes them feel like they're a cog in this giant machine. And then the government promises that it's going to use us as this, you know, sword of righteousness to purge society. And then the great leader will come back and, and he will lead us all to nirvana. And, you know, curiously, this is, um, I mean, this is actually an early Christian uh, heresy, meaning a, what we would now call a sect. Or a denomination, mm-hmm. uh, and you know that was the exact version of it. Okay, is that um, you know the world is impure, and Christ will not come back until the world has reached some quantum of purity. Okay, mm-hmm. he's not coming back until we clean up the joint. All mm-hmm. right, and so what we need to do is we need to bring everybody together into the sort of righteousness that will you know get rid of the prostitutes and the liars and the gamblers and the whatever the greedy people. So we're going to get rid of all of them, kill them. And once we've reached a certain level, Christ will come back and he will reign over us for the uh, millennium, okay? And this was, you know, a a sort of a fundamentalist sect. It swept like a firestorm through Europe, various versions. You had Calvinism, you know, and that morphed as is into what we now call socialism. The only difference is that instead of Jesus coming back, okay, you're just going to pop in like your face here. So we're going to put Mao in there, or we're going to pull pot or, you know, whomever we're going to put our dear leader into that spot to play Jesus. And other than that, it's up and down the line, right? So the emphasis on how, you know, hate is, you know, the most uh, important element, you know, you know, we have to have somebody who's ticked all of the uh, demographic boxes. Well, there's a very good reason for that, which is, that is how you can unite everybody into the undifferentiated fireball that gives us that critical mass to cleanse the world so that our dear leader can come back and lead us into the millennium. And, you know, the early guys in socialism, um, Saint-Simon uh, through Marx, these people were typically the children of fundamentalist preachers. Mm-hmm. I mean, it. it You know, this is not conspiracy, by the way. You can read uh, Ralph Bard's histories. Um, He goes through all of this. Uh, But it's quite fascinating that Marxism quite literally is a religion. It's not even a question. I mean, the the people are directly coming out of the identical religion. The one change is that they took out the supernatural element, Jesus, and they replaced him with Mao Zedong. And Mm -hmm. other than that, it is identical. So that's where they want to take us. And so the question is, how do we stop that? Which brings us to today.
1: Interesting. interesting. So, so that's, I want, I want to pull on this a little bit further because I, I guess, h- how do you separate, um, I guess, the, the similarity between these fundamentalist sects of Christianity and Marxism versus the essence of Christianity seeming to be quite different, at least. Um, You know, do you kind of, where's the line there?
0: No, they are. And that's what's fascinating. I think in modern society, we um, underestimate how much these Christian ideologies, it doesn't matter if you don't believe in God, okay? Nothing to do with it. Culturally, these things continue to play out. And you know, during the period when that that ideology, uh, let's call it Calvinist for um, for shorthand, uh, when that was playing out across Europe, the you know um, sort of opposing side was the more traditional uh, Catholic Church, and the the idea there was that the only way that you could truly be good is if you had a choice. Okay, so if you were forced to be good, that's not real morality. Okay. And so there was this emphasis, particularly in the 15 and 1600s, there was this emphasis in Catholicism by then, earlier it had been totalitarian, okay? Um, But by then there was this emphasis that um, it was very important that people had free will because only through free will could they choose to do the right thing, okay? Mm -hmm. And then that's how you you would achieve grace, right? Uh, And that has translated, I mean, through to this very day, if you look at an electoral map of a U.S. election, it precisely reflects the migration patterns of people who came from the more traditional Catholic parts of Britain and people who came from the more fundamentalist parts, the more Protestant parts of Britain. So, you know, the one group, East Anglia, they was kind of the core of that movement, and they went over to you know Boston and down through New York. The other group generally came to the South, um, largely because they were on the losing side in the Civil War, uh, the English Civil War. Uh, but the point is that that like in a sense, the English Civil War has not ended. It, it's it's very much ongoing. It's not as bloody as it was once, um, but ideologically, it is certainly ongoing. Right, we are still absolutely having the debate. And I mean, in a sense, like the entire Protestant Reformation, right? Because that was sort of what was at issue, right? Was is morality something that random preachers can just make up, or is there some long-standing morality that we should respect? Uh, Friedrich Hayek called it uh, prejudice, but that we should, meaning that we should give an extra weighting to things that have been around for a really long time. And that debate very much is ongoing day to day.
1: And from what I understand, though, the 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 Protestants were of the latter side, right? That there's longstanding principles that
0: are more morality or are you saying it's the other way around? So Protestantism pretty early, it fragmented uh, into a lot of different points of view. Um, So, you know, within what we're discussing here, this sort of Calvinist, um, it's also expressed in the Puritans uh, up in the north of the U.S., um, that you know, was always sort of a minority view within Protestantism, right? Um, But broadly speaking, if we sort of array them on a spectrum, the Catholic Church traditionally has been the most conservative in the sense that it has given the most weight, both to history, but it's also been traditionally much more interested in individual rights. There's sort of a stereotype that the Catholic Church is extremely restrictive. The trick is that the Catholic Church would typically have very, very specific rules, Okay, like you're supposed to eat this on this day. I mean, frankly, pretty low-cost rules. They were maybe a little bit weird sometimes, but anyway, it would have a bunch of rules. On the opposite end of that spectrum, you would have these sort of totalitarian um denominations where every single thing you did was subject to more or less a standing committee who would sit around to decide. Uh, whether you were a friend of the revolution. So within Protestantism, because there was so much evolution and so much fragmentation, there are a whole bunch of Protestant um, denominations, right? Some of them are almost the same as Catholicism, such as Anglicism, right? That, 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 you know, I think within Britain, that's seen as very close to Catholicism. And then you've got all these wacky ones way off on the side. Generally speaking, the wacky ones are the ones who fled to America, because they were troublemakers, mm. right? They, they originally fled to Holland, which was the most tolerant country at the time. And they just ran around uh, harassing their neighbors. You know, you can't drink on Sunday. You can't do this and that. People got so <laughs> fed up with them in the most tolerant society on Earth, probably since Earth had existed. They got so pissed off with them that they chased them out. So they went from Holland to Massachusetts, where they founded uh, the United States, uh, so I mean, you you know, you have this line, and I mean, it's not quite so clean as you know, Catholic versus Protestant. You also have different wings within um, Catholicism. You have the Jesuits, and you know, you have different different beliefs. Um, but I, I you know, for these purposes, the moral of the story is that modern socialism is absolutely a branch of Christianity. They just don't realize um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. it's ironically the only religion that feels free to um, demean every other. You know, mm-hmm. if you're Muslim. Uh, generally, uh, you know, if you're Christian, if you're Muslim, if you're Hindu, you generally, most people in those religions accept that you've got to live and let live, right? That person over there is a Christian and he believes something else. And, you know, mm-hmm. they can kind of accept that, Pro- um, uh, progressivism is the one religion. They tolerate no dissent, right? <laughs> you, you will be canceled. You will lose your job if you are a Christian, it's um it's kind of wild and of course if you ask progressives progressives are convinced that they are the absolute center the most tolerant people that yeah of course yeah has ever seen and you know they are in fact a religion and they are in fact by far the most intolerant religion on earth
1: Mm -hmm. Mm
0: -hmm. so okay so then i want to ask
1: another question we haven't even fucking touch the um the article at this point but th- this is this is this is fascinating to me because you know i i i guess i was at least wearing the glasses that told me that uh, catholicism in many ways particularly towards the end had decayed to the point that um you know a lot of the rules and what were quote unquote morals were just really arbitrarily made up by Yes. Whichever priest or whichever thing, right? Which, which to me, you know, sound. I, I was under the impression that Protestantism, Protestantism emerged as a way to kind of combat that uh, that decay. To say that, well, wait a minute, this is just fucking ridiculous. Yep. It it's you know lost the original meaning. So so it's interesting to hear you kind of examine that a little bit. So.
0: Yeah, and 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 every movement does um, become corrupt over time. And mm-hmm. in religion, you see this pattern, right? So um, Hinduism, there was a period where it became very corrupt and, you know, you had to dedicate a large part of your monthly income to paying the priest mm-hmm. for this, mm-hmm. that, and the other. Mm-hmm. And a reaction to that came from Buddhism, which stripped away a lot of those requirements, mm-hmm. right? And, and that's very similar to the, to the Catholic Church, um, you know, and then uh, Protestantism, which uh, stripped that away. So, I mean, that's a very common um, uh, cycle uh, within religions. And, you know, indeed, every movement becomes um, corrupt. So, you know, the Catholic Church in the time of Lu- of uh, Martin Luther was certainly corrupt. Everybody knew it was corrupt. People at the time, I mean, it's quite ironic. People at the time had zero respect for the church, mm. um, which is quite funny because this is not what you learn in school, of course. What you learn in school is that everybody was a robot who, you know, obeyed what the priest said. People in Martin Luther's day, they saw the church the way that we see politicians today. Mm, mm-hmm, right, mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. they respected them in a sense. You know, um, they accorded them certain honors. Um, our politicians typically wear suits; they don't have to wear prison uniforms. Um, they, you know, hang out in expensive buildings. Uh, they have gavels and they have all of these. So the finery of it—it it looks like we quite respect them, but of course we don't really. Nobody does. Yeah, 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 right?
1: yeah.
0: And so it was—it was quite similar with the Catholic Church by that time, because they had become so corrupted. Uh, It was quite standard that, you know, abbeys and priests would own the whorehouses. Um, Mm -hmm. I mean, it was it it was it was not what it says on the tin. Um, And (laughs) this happens with all movements. Uh, You know, um, certain individuals in recent social movements uh, have bought, you know, million dollar houses uh, out of donations where people thought they were going to social justice. I mean, this is, you know, every organization in creation, uh, is vulnerable to, um, to corruption, which is part of the reason that we're pushing for Bitcoin, right? Is that, is that we can end run around this and at least take currency out of that universe of, you know, perpetual decay and. Yeah. So, so
1: two things I want to kind of ask one, one around, um, Oh, fuck. Let, let, let's go with this first. Um Bitcoin Actually no. Let, let's let's let me let me just make a note here before I forget because yeah, yeah, no worries. there's two. Bitcoin as a So I had an epiphany a little while ago and I've started to use this model to describe uh, the differentiation between the institution uh of Religion, um, and and the the original philosophy, or the idea of something like Christianity, right? So, I I grew up in a uh, I guess Macedonian Orthodox, which is very similar to uh, Russian Orthodox, uh kind of family. And when I turned sort of seventeen, eighteen, I started questioning the whole idea of God and this and that because you know I had this grandmother who was just you know at home, and everything kind of revolved around the, the pictures of Jesus and Mary on the wall, right? And I, I you know that kind of shit. Ended up rubbing me the wrong way. Um, I was very academically strong, and I, I was just very inquisitive and curious. So, I ended up swinging the complete opposite way. I went total fucking atheist. I'm like this: none of the, all of this is bullshit. Religion is a scam. Um, I went down all sorts of other rabbit holes, and and it was probably you know five six years ago where I started getting into a little bit of Jordan Peterson stuff and etc cetera, etc. Cetera. And, and I think a lot of people seem to have this journey: as they then they start to appreciate the, I guess, the original essence of what uh, Christianity was, was, you know, this this idea or teaching or concept or meta, this golden thread about how one should live uh, in the most moral form, but viewing it stripped of all of the religious, like, uh, you know, I guess stripped of the almost the element of you said, you know, like the gavels and the and like removing all the ornamentation and just looking at the essence of it. So so anyway, where I'm getting to is the model that hit me was this idea that you've got Christianity itself as like the the philosophy, you know or, or the 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 meta. Um, then you have the religions, which there's multiple like it's the a religion is an interpretation of this philosophy, and there can be multiple of those. Um, and even they're not so bad because, you know, anyone can have an interpretation of a philosophy. That's fine. Um, you know, some can be quite extreme, some centrist, et cetera, but, you know, their interpretations. And then where I sort of saw the problem was in the third layer, which is the institutionalization of the religion, of the philosophy. So it's kind of like two steps away from the original essence of this thing. So how does that kind of modality or how, how does that model fit the way you view all of these Um these things that we've sort of been discussing.
0: Yeah. I mean, that's, that's always a tension um, is that there are going to be um, in evolutionary psychology, they call it spandrels, right? Which um, a spandrel is like a little flying buttress off. You see them on churches in medieval Europe and a spandrel is a feature that serves no purpose. Okay. Mm -hmm. Um, and this is quite common in evolution that you'll have these random little things where, you know, you can sit there and try to imagine there's some purpose to them. And often there, there, there is no purpose whatsoever. Um, like an appendix. Yeah, exactly. Right. It was like a mutation that was not so costly that it got corrected back out. And so it just stuck around. And then maybe you had some path dependence where now that the mutation is there, you know, it, it leads on to something else that itself is to cope with the mutation, but you never would have done it in the first place. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, everything sort of decays in that sense. Uh, I mean, indeed, humans, we have all kinds of parts that are useless. You know, we have we have prehensile tails that, you know, I mean, it seems like we could save the energy and, you know, lose 0.2 percent on our uh, energy cost by getting rid of the extra parts. Uh, but, um, you know, societies also accumulate these in, in many, many larger numbers because humans are complicated and do all kinds of weird things for weird reasons. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, so when you are looking at something like a religion and, you know, in a sense, a religion is is very similar to a protocol protocol. Um, You know, it's you're you're or you know another. uh, It's also similar to a constitution, right? You're you're basically Mm -hmm. laying something out, and you're making this trade-off between what parts you want to be, you know, written in stone, and which parts you want to be negotiable according to the circumstances of the moment. And you know, um, evolution is sort of the purest version of that, right? Evolution has to take just a blind stab. They have no idea what's going on out there. They can't see anything. Right, they're like a car driving at night with no headlights. They don't even know what they're going into, and they got to get you through it. So you know, evolution makes a bunch of guesses, and sometimes it screws up, and you get a miscarriage, or you get a you know, a human who doesn't last long. Um, but you know, uh, at, at any rate, uh, a lot of those do stick around. And so, if you're trying to, you know, in the case of humans, we pretty much take them as they are. Uh, but in the case of an institution or a political system. Um, or religion, right, which, which, you know, all share this this sort of uh, architecture, um, that's going to be an enduring question and an enduring conflict, or, um, uh, you know, people are going to disagree, which parts of this do we need, and which parts of them are spandrels. And religions inevitably have a whole bunch of spandrels, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, basically marketing pitches that worked at some point Um, Many of them are corrupt. Um, You know, the Catholic church uh, restrictions on eating fish or meat on this and that day. They were generally instituted by specific abbeys who had specific special interests. I mean, they were basically corporate donations, Mm -hmm. you know, the equivalent of the day. Um, And so that's, you know, partly that means that every religion constantly has tension. You know, even if you think the Catholic church today, there are political wings inside the church and they're constantly debating all kinds of things. Um, they're debating, you know, what degree of centralization it should have and, you know, how much weight should be given to this popple bowl or that. Um, and, you know, that's that's natural and healthy, I think. Um, but there are indeed certain things that, you know, almost everybody can agree should be kept. You know, so, for example, um, you know, every constitution tends to guarantee a right to life. Uh, you know, it's I, I mean, to like not be murdered. Uh, you know, there are just certain commonalities. Um, and. You know, one of the I think something that appeals to a lot of libertarians anyway, um, which I consider myself a libertarian, uh, is the common law. Okay, Mm -hmm. and I'm Mm -hmm. are are you familiar with the common law's origins? So, so Rome uh, was a multi ethnic society. It was you know one of history's first true multi ethnic societies where the um, sort of dominant um, culture was held by a minority of the people, right? This is quite rare, right? Usually when you had two tribes come together, one tribe was the obvious, um, you know, victor, and, you know, they were imposing uh, their rules on the losing tribe. But in the case of Rome, it it was kind of this weird situation, right? Uh, And so people would come into the empire and they would not be familiar with the Roman legal system, which had all kinds of little quirks and spandrels, Uh, And so they didn't they didn't know how to behave. I mean, you know, if you're running a business in a country where you don't know what the legal system is, this is going to make you nervous. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: Uh, And so Rome uh, solved that problem by creating a parallel second legal system, which it called the common law. And the idea of the common law was that everybody could use this set of rules because the set of rules would be universal. And everybody could understand them intuitively without having to sit there and pick up a law book, which, you know, mo- many people couldn't even read. Right. Uh, and what's fun about the common law is that once they came up with this, not only was it extremely popular uh, among the um, you know, immigrants into Rome, but actually Romans started using it. OK, and they stopped using the traditional system. Why? Because the common law was so beautiful. I think if there's something that you could ask, what is as beautiful as Bitcoin? I think it's the common law. Uh, it is incredible in its elegance. And, and, and essentially what the common law captures is that if you had a plane crash and everybody survived, good news, and you had every single person on the plane was from a different country okay, and didn't even necessarily speak the same language, and now they've all got to survive on some desert island somewhere with water. The common law is what would naturally evolve. OK, so there are a number mm-hmm. of rules. So, for example, uh, an unowned resource belongs to the first person who finds it. If that person picks it up and drops it, they don't own it anymore. OK, however, if that person picks it up and combines their labor with it, for example, you know, they uh, carve the wood into a you know, beautiful shape that belongs to them now. Okay. Mm -hmm. There are all of these rules in common law that are, uh, you almost don't need to study it because you can just ask what's fair. Mm -hmm. And, you know, to me that, (laughs) I mean, that's the closest thing to Bitcoin. It's, it's really elegant. Uh, If you have a ship, all right, I can't dock my boat to your dock. I can't just come and tie up because it's your dock. However, if there's a storm then I can under the common law, Okay, because I got to save my boat from the storm. But if I do that and my boat damages your dock, then I have to pay you the value of the damages. Mm -hmm. Obviously fair.
1: It sounds sounds like property rights almost.
0: It is property rights derived from the common law. That's exactly Mm -hmm. right. So John Mm -hmm. Locke, you know, um, his his philosophy in his second treatise. He essentially laid out an ethical system that was completely consistent with the common law, and you know the the left is fond of um, emphasizing the differences between people. Uh, we are not nearly as different as people imagine. And actually, when it comes to morality, the fact that the common law is so durable, it's thousands of years old. Uh, I mean, you know, I just gave you one of the rules. I am certain that no matter where your listeners are from, any country in the world they will agree that's quite a fair outcome on the boat thing. It's (laughs) astounding. And, you know, so the point I'm getting is that when we're talking about what's core and what's negotiable, I think it's very, very important. You know, there are certain things that are truly non-negotiable, right? And, you know, some of them like the common law, I mean, that has stood the test of time. Uh, If we look at the sort of core rules present in most constitutions, things like free speech, I don't know about most anymore, but at any rate, traditionally popular in constitution, some of these core fundamental rights, you know, we have paid a very high tuition to learn that those things are core. You can't give those up. If you give those up, there will be blood. So don't do it. If you find yourself starting to do it, go back. <laughs> or <laughs> if the people in charge are not interested in going back, maybe they're not the ones who pay the blood. Okay. Okay. Then we try to look for some other mechanism like Bitcoin where we can disarm them before they cause too much damage.
1: <laughs> the, the common law thing is actually really interesting. So, when, when you say it got developed in Rome, like what, what was the development process like? You, you know, emergent, like it's is it kind of
0: question? Yeah. Um, I would assume they brought in people, you know, a lot of the immigrants at the time were, um, they were Germanic, Slavic, North African, uh, Egyptian. And uh, I mean, I would love to be a fly on the wall. Uh, I don't know. Um, I imagine they brought these people together and just asked them, okay, you know, here are some um, typical legal disputes. Uh, The vast majority of legal disputes probably fit into like five categories. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, you took something and I claim it's mine. Okay, there's, there's a relatively small number of legal disputes that people have, yeah. uh, and I'm guessing they just went through those and, and tried to sort of identify rules that everybody could agree on. Uh, and I mean, indeed, you know, like Bitcoin, if you were to gather five friends from different countries and sit them around the table and pose a bunch of legal questions, uh, I mean, you would reinvent the common law in probably about an hour and three beers. Mm-hmm. So,
1: is there is there like a common law charter or, or something that kind of describes the core tenets in,
0: in there? Not exactly. Um, so, the the British system, of course, for a long time uh, was explicitly based on common law. Uh, today, even um, British systems and its descendants um, are mixtures. Um, of course, common law. To be fair, common law did evolve over time. Right? There mm-hmm. were different readings uh, in different periods, and part of this was a discovery process. Part of it was we faced new questions that hadn't been faced before. Um, you know, things like online privacy. I mean, necessarily, there's not going to be a body of law that precisely pertains to that. Uh, and so you have evolutions. And typically, the way that it evolves is that individual judges uh, will make decisions whether or not those judges work for the state. Okay. So the common law far predated uh, states. states. Yeah. So the judges would typically be acclaimed by local agreement. Um, You know, some community would respect somebody. Uh, Village elder basically Mm -hmm. captures it. Uh, That person would act as a judge. And then that person's decisions would act as a precedent and a guide to future judges. Some judges are stupid or, you know, corruption does occur. Uh, And so, you know, if sort of the consensus felt that that was a bad decision, then it wouldn't survive uh and so in a sense you know any version of the common law is going to be a snapshot uh there is i want to say lord black i don't remember exactly there is an iconic version of it that was printed i want to say in the 1700s um which you know was relied on for a long time uh if you wanted to be a lawyer um for ages and perhaps still today uh you have to read that um mm-hmm. but yeah it was it was a somewhat evolving uh thing just because it it faced new questions
1: Interesting. So what's the relationship with that and, you know, there's a lot of you know, I think people take for granted the fact that a lot of western civilization was built on christian ideals or the, you know, the ideals of christianity. Like is there a relationship between um you know, christian morality which is, you know, some form of christian law, right, and the emergent common law that kind of came out of Rome and and have they sort of like merged and bonded and blended?
0: Yeah, that's an kind interesting of what question. we have today, right? Yeah, um, I mean, you know, throughout the history of the church, they coexisted, so you typically had uh canonic law or you know, uh, church law, um, and then that would coexist beside the common law, so you know, church law would typically not address things like you know, common theft. Mm. Um, that would be left to the common law. Um, so they did coexist. And um, I mean it's a fascinating question how they influenced uh, each other. Jordan Peterson might actually know uh, this topic far better than I. Um, but without a doubt, they had influence on each other. Um, I mean, largely the common law uh, reinforced, um, you know, social. I, I, I mean, what it would have done effectively is that, you know, you've got sort of a third player in that, which is often the state. Right. And indeed, for a lot of European history, you know, you you had tension between those three. Right. So you had a version of code law uh, from the church where the church would basically, you know, it would pronounce on certain topics that were important to it, such as marriage. Uh, And then you had um, which was important for uh, inheritance and things like that, property rights. Uh, And then you would have the states that would typically impose a separate set set of code laws. And in both those cases, they were very, very restricted. Right. So states would only issue laws on things that were super important to them, generally military. Um, You know, in in Britain, you had the Star Chamber, right, which was a sort of special court that was for these state laws. Uh, And that was really separate from the entire rest of the system. Whatever the Star Chamber decided was not taken as precedent anywhere else. That was understood as the state. Uh, came in and imposed its will. And, you know, we have to obey it, not because we respect the state necessarily, but just that's, that's the game. Uh, So, right. There was always tension between all of those. And without a doubt, common law would have influenced the other two, right? Whatever outcomes common law would give would have been sort of the baseline where, you know, the state would try not to um, uh, stray from that unless there was a darn good reason, because, Any sort of rule that was consistent with the common law would have had greater social buy-in. And states always want legitimacy, right? They always want people to look up to them for a variety of reasons. It lowers the odds of revolution. (laughs) There's a bunch of stuff it does. Um, So, right, states would have at least tried to make their rules as consistent as possible while fulfilling whatever goals they have. uh, Tax revenue, murdering their enemies, whatever it is. What, what was the name of the institution you said the star what um star chamber what where the hell did that name come from uh it, i believe it had stars painted on the ceiling and okay. uh, yeah the, the um the monarch the king or queen would uh you know that was his or her special uh room and you generally didn't want to go to the star chamber <laughs> it, was, <laughs> it was a bad place to go it was a dark dark place so, and, and, yeah, that was completely separate. That was kind of the equivalent of like military courts. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. That was, yeah, you didn't want to go there.
1: Mm. Okay. So then to my second question that I had before. So we've kind of framed the state basically as a, as a religion. And, and I, I think that that is fundamentally true. I think people, I mean, it's, it's funny. Most statists are basically call themselves atheists and little do they know they've just replaced you know, God with government, right? Quite literally, yep. um, But what's your thoughts then on, you know, this idea that seems to be floating around of like Bitcoin as a religion? What's your thoughts there?
0: Anything that people love is going to take on a certain, um, uh, you know, special status. uh, And, uh, you know, because Bitcoin correlates with a lot of other lifestyle choices, uh, you know, Bitcoiners tend to have more respect for tr- uh, for, you know, families with kids.
1: <laughs>
0: but, but I mean, traditional. I don't I, I don't care about the gender. Everybody wants to talk about gender. I don't care about gender. What I'm talking about is stable families where, you know, people can rely on each other and trust each other and depend on each other. Um, uh, Bitcoiners tend to be you know more libertarian. They tend to be friendlier towards Ron Paul. They tend to like uh, animal oils uh, vaping, uh, you know, there's like a whole bunch of behaviors and whatever you have those sort of behavioral correlates, um, you know, to an outsider, it's going to look like a religion without a doubt. And, you know, I mean, the feeling is mutual, you know, the other side, they, they, you know, whatever they have their carbon footprints and their granola and so on. Um, so, you know, I mean, partly, you know, it, it is, uh, the other side sort of defining us. Um, but I think there is some truth to it that I sort of encourage, Right. Which is that over, particularly over the past two years, but really over the past 50, we have seen any organization that lacks a strong social immune system. Mm -hmm, It's mm -hmm. trashed. Right. It's absolutely gutted from the inside. Everything is sucked out. Its skin is left. And then they parade that around like a trophy. And that's happened to the universities. Right. There are a whole bunch of institutions that used to be deeply respected. Lancet Medical Journal. I mean, they they do not stop, right? They suck the life out of all of these things and turn them into their trophies. And, you know, there's always a gap between regular people understanding what happened, that, you know, this is invasion of the body snatchers. So they continue believing these idiots. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, even though they've been mm-hmm. taken over by their parasites. And so, I mean, part of me, you know, when I hear the, you know, Bitcoin is a religion thing, part of me says, hell yeah. <laughs> Cope, you know, I, I yeah, want yeah. to be... Toxic. I don't want us to destroy anybody's life, but I love the toxic the toxicity. Uh, I encourage it. I want us to have an extremely immune, uh, strong immune system, so they don't gut us next. Because they they're constantly trying. Uh, it's like running a website. You've got hacker attacks, endless. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Uh, yeah if, okay. if, if anybody's ever run their own you know, you, you you like turn on the notifications for the hacker attacks and very quickly you understand that's not how you do it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's nonstop. Uh, so, I mean, we are under attack. Every social movement is under attack. Libertarians, you name it. Any, any um, center of authority or respect or, you know, because that can be converted into power, all of those will always be under attack. And that's life. You know, I mean, in a sense, you know, get over it. Um you know, there's no use complaining that will always be the case. Uh, and so you know, in terms of at least the the sort of social defense, you know, we can't erect a physical defense of Bitcoin, right yeah. <laughs> That's you know part of the beauty of it. Um, but we can what we can absolutely do is keep our social defenses um, formidable. I could not agree more there i'm I'm, I'm glad you framed it that
1: way because. I, I was writing a piece recently, so I'm, I'm taking Peterson's 12 rules and I'm kind of basically pulling the essence out of the rules and writing about how, you know, the ideas within each chapter, uh, relate to Bitcoin and how Bitcoin makes them more, uh, more, uh, I guess, attainable, achievable and functional. And, and the recent one was, um, you know, comparing yourself with who you are, uh, who we, who you were yesterday, not who someone else is uh, today. And th- there's a whole. I mean, all, all of Peterson's stuff is quite rich. But yep. you know, what I what I recently wrote was this idea about how um, how Bitcoin is, at, at least the Bitcoin ecosystem, fundamentally functions a bit like a religion for um, for better or worse. But but I said that what what triggered me was do you know, um, oh fuck, what's his name, Shinobi. On Twitter? Yeah. Yeah. So he did a tweet a little while ago. He said, I've, I've never seen or been in an industry where the um, where the people involved, where there's such a large gap between um, uh, confidence and knowledge by the people involved, right? <laughs> because there is that there's a whole rampant, like, you know, you get these people who come in, they're just basically parrot the same shit, like 21 million, decentralized. They, they don't have any idea what any of these things mean. But I kind of countered that tweet. I was like, you know what, that is true, and that would make a technical person, um, uh, you know, concerned because a technical person is thinking about the the very fact that, you know, if you don't understand the the technical and empirical thing that you're working with, um, it could fail. But Bitcoin seems to transcend just the the technical and empirical. Layer. It it is also a narrative. It is a it is a story. It is a it is a myth. It is a religion, right? And that kind of transcendent nature of Bitcoin gives it, as you said, like a layer of defense. It's you know we have a whole a whole fucking millions of idiots technically that are holding Bitcoin that know how to parrot three things: censorship resistant, decentralized, and twenty one million. They don't know how or why, but they'll put all their wealth in it,
0: and that adds to Bitcoin's strength. And there, there's a very logical reason why um, people are doing that, which is that the Bitcoin social community is arguably the most trustworthy community on earth. And the reason is because there is no institutional finger on the scale. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Right, right. So, I mean, you know, some of the people we have, Seyfudin, uh Michael Saylor, these are people who I would leave my baby with them for a month. OK, and I have second thoughts, man. We have abs people of absolute integrity. And the reason we do is because when some jerk crosses the line and I, I'm sure we won't name names, uh, we we trundle the bastard out. What mm-hmm. other organization does that? Right. When Harvard starts doing that, we can talk about, you know, how weird it is that, uh, you know, people parrot lines. But the point is that there is an abnormal degree of trust in the. I don't want to say elite, but in the widely respected people within the Bitcoin community. And that's because you got to earn it. Mm. And if you lose it, it goes real fast. We've all seen a bunch of people who stepped over the line and screwed up on a rug pull or something. And holy cow, man, you go from God to gutter so fast in Bitcoin. There is no other social community as remotely close To the evolutionary process that we have perfected. Now, ideally, I'd like that. And and that's, you know, partly why uh, I'm thrilled that, you know, Bitcoiners get interested in in things like diet. Uh, I would like to import our Mm -hmm. hyper, you know, competitive quality control system. I would like us to take over the university. So I feel no, no shame. In the fact that you know, bitcoiners come in and 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 know three details, um, you know, and are, and are you know put their life savings in. No, this is this is quite logical because we have such a strong evolutionary process. Yeah, it's interesting. It,
1: it it's basically a an answer to you know when people say, oh, you know, but if the regulator didn't exist, how would we keep these corporations honest? It's like, right. have you seen Bitcoin Twitter? <laughs> it's
0: like... So so now let's talk about how much you trust regulators. Which regulator would you leave your baby with for a month? Yeah, exactly, right? <laughs> These exactly. people are criminals. <laughs> they, they are corrupted. Oh, my goodness. Well, and, and that's exactly it. So that's, you know, the trick is always you can beat anything with perfection. Okay. But perfection is never, ever on the table. So, mm. you, you know, you got to beat it with what, <laughs> right? So what is the alternative? To our system, well, we can see it, and it, it's it's the university. Okay, the university is a highly structured quality control, right? You have you know peer review, and you have committees of this and that, and you've got you know people come back and test your data, and and all this. They have all these beautiful controls. Have you read a university paper? No, right? A while, so man. <laughs> yeah, so on on paper, it's one heck of a. You know, quality control system. In reality, it's corrupted, right? And so, I, I, if I hear that somebody wrote a paper about Bitcoin and they are a professor at Harvard, this means literally zero to me. And I'm not just trying to trash Harvard. Okay, I think literally anybody in your audience. I mean, for you, if you hear that a Harvard researcher wrote a paper on Bitcoin, I do you wouldn't think even that's going to be blink. a high quality
1: product. Yeah,
0: zero. Yeah, Yeah, right. You don't assume you're going to get any wisdom out of that. You assume that it's going to be parroting the party line, which is what the person has to do to keep their job because Mm -hmm. the institution is completely corrupt. On the other hand, if you hear that a very, very prominent Bitcoiner, somebody who's widely respected in our community, wrote a paper that says surprising things, you're going to be surprised. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You can trust that quality metric a hundred times more than you can trust the formal metric. And and why again do you think that is the case? Because we don't have outside interference, right? Mm-hmm. So we have a quality control process, okay? That you know it's evolutionary, right? So um, only the best mutations survive in our process, okay? Mm-hmm. So you know we have this social immune system. It's made up of individual people making individual choices of their own will, and they choose people who should be sort of spokespeople in a sense uh opinion leaders okay our opinion leaders are chosen bottom up they are not dictated they're not appointed there is no committee right and once they're in that position if they screw up they're out of there i mean immediately minutes mm-hmm. so we have that um immune that sort of evolutionarily guided immune system and the end result is that we are far more credible than harvard I think we're far more credible than any other community out there. Even libertarianism, which I Mm. love, there are institutions in libertarianism. And if some prominent libertarian says something, first of all, he doesn't lose his job. He gets to stay. Everybody treats it sort of out of weight to how it should be taken. Our community is... I mean, it, it is the pure market of ideas. It is yeah. the perfect market of ideas. Nobody gets a higher platform. Up. Yeah, people have followers, but I mean, you know, you've been in the gig for a while. There are a lot of people come out of nowhere. They say, you know, shit that clicks and people go, holy cow, damn, you're right. Seyfedeen, okay? Seyfedeen came out of nowhere and he mm-hmm. had a lot of fantastic insights and poof, he is respected now, okay? There are other guys who said things that... uh made them lose that respect. Um, we have an extremely strong uh, evolutionary process in our community.
1: Yeah. I, I mean, maybe maybe that's a function of why we ended up all converging on something like Twitter, which is, you know, like a, like a public square, um, you know, the, the, the digital public square. And that's kind of where the strongest uh, Bitcoin voice is. Um, it's an inter- interesting thing. Thank you for listening to the Wake Up Podcast. Find us on the Fountain app and send us a boost with a comment. I'll try and read them new tweet and send you a shout out. And remember to grab a copy of the Uncommunist Manifesto and join us in defeating the plague that is
0: consuming our world.